The Big Food Question is partnering with TD Bank on five special episodes about the resilience of small businesses in the face of a constantly shifting pandemic landscape. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, me, Zara Tangora, and I will today speak for Bobby, Bobby Comforto, my mom. Um, today on the show, we have uh, a friend of the show, a listener and friend from outside of work, um, Tova Shanuk. So Tova um, is amazing, and you will all soon come to find that out. She has experienced so much grief and loss in her life, um, and she is so incredibly generous in sharing with us today the really intimate details of some of those losses that she experienced. Um, Tova's an amazing cook, a wonderful, bright, shining light of a person, um, really just a magnetic personality. And a very, I mean, I hesitate to ever say a real person because all people are real people. (laughs) They're just different kinds of people. But I think when we think typically of what we mean when we say a real person. Um, That is what I think of when I think of Tova, which I think really just means a very engaged person and a kind of no bullshit person. Um, And someone you can really make a fast friend with and a real friend with. And uh, I'm really feel very fortunate to call her my friend. Um, Tova is joining us today all the way from her home in Germany. And we talk a bit about that, uh, as well as just, I don't know, just such a myriad of things. It was such a rich um, and really beautiful conversation. And yeah, I just felt really lucky to be a part of it. Um, so anyway, without any further ado, uh, please enjoy our conversation with Tova. And it's great to be back, folks, after a bit of a break. Um, Bobby and I took some personal time. We took some time to spend together and travel together. Um, and just trying as best we can to, you know, let some light in during a, what's been a, you know, a really intense time. I don't know if anyone's noticed, but things are not going great. (laughs) Um, and also in ways they are going great. And I guess it's all about the kind of the little wins taking where you can get them. Um, so we really hope that everyone out there is also doing okay, um, okay to good. And if you're not doing good, that's okay too. Um, okay. 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 All right. Enjoy our conversation with Tova. And if you like this show, we really kindly ask you to please rate, review, and subscribe. really helps the show reach other people. And, um, that's the goal because this is a community, right? Survival is a community event. Okay, folks, take care of yourselves and each other and enjoy our conversation with Tova. And thank you, Tova. You're the best. This week we are welcoming uh, a friend and wonderful human, uh, Tova Shanuk. Tova is joining us from Germany. Tova, yep. hello. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to Germany, it everyone. It's good. It's good. It's just as hot there as it is here. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, 
we really appreciate you coming on. I mean, just because we appreciate you having you here, but it's always wonderful to be talking to someone who's like joining us from halfway across the world. It feels really cool and special that we, it doesn't feel like that far because we're all sitting here looking at each other. And that's kind of the magic. It's, it's, it's like when you used to call home from Europe from a payphone and your mom would say, yeah. or Bobby would say, yeah. like, wow, <laughs> it sounds like you're just next door. But like with satellites and the internet, it is like I'm just next door, except I'm really not anywhere near you guys. <laughs> totally. Well, it's really great to see you today. And we kind of got to know each other uh, kind of preliminarily when you were working at Roman's, a really wonderful restaurant in Brooklyn. Yeah, you you had Brucey, and I ate there once, and I remember it being like, I thought it was so cool that you would just put a giant lasagna on a platter, and that was a dish. <laughs> and I'm like, give the people what they want, yeah, like instead of trying to talk people into dishes they don't necessarily want to eat, you were like, right. here's what you want, and I'm going to give it to you. And I love that about it. Thank you. I also Thank really you so liked, much. I only ate there once, but I remember really enjoying it. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely, um, I'm not going to say I'm popular on the Brooklyn scene, but like the restaurant community <laughs> in Brooklyn is relatively small, as you know. And yeah. um, we've eventually, everybody works with somebody that somebody worked with. Totally. And you, yeah, you are very well known amongst both the Brooklyn restaurant scene and you're a really accomplished cook and chef and um, I, you know, have a curiosity a little bit into how you got interested in cooking in the first place. Was your, was it in your family where your mom and dad cooks? What was the kind of food vibe at home? You grew up in New York city, right? Yeah. So I grew up in New York city and born and raised Chelsea whole life would go out to dinner every week with my grandparents who lived on 10th street and Broadway. So, um, there's that, but I've been eating for as long as I can remember. So food has definitely been a daily, like something for me, but, um, I've always loved, um, ingredients and, and I've always been hungry. Like some people Mm. aren't big eaters. And now that I have a son, I sort of see that with children. He loves food. He wants to put everything in his mouth. He's a child. And he is interested in, I was always like, what's that? I want to try that. Or like, or sitting, Mm. I remember sitting with my parents at restaurants and I would want to try something weird. And my dad would always order something safe so that I could have like, the beef Wellington only to discover that it is definitely (laughs) something for adults and not for children because nobody wants liver inside of like a croissant with like beef underneath it. Like I just wanted the beef and the croissant thingy. Right, right, right. But they would let you try it. They would let you try. Yeah. Yeah. They were always really, um, adventurous and they were, they were also like, my parents also loved to eat. They would drag us out to Bay Ridge because my mom heard about a restaurant or, Mm. Um, we would go to Staten Island or we, so truth be told, I've actually only been to Staten Island twice, but both times it was to eat at <laughs> restaurants and I don't remember which ones they were. <laughs> and I remember it was like going, it was like worse than going to New Jersey because I didn't know where I was or how we were getting back. <laughs> or how you we were getting back. That's funny. Like you have arrived there, but then the fear sets in about yeah. how will I ever go home from this I place. do remember being more excited about the hot dog on the ferry one of the times than about the restaurant we had eaten at. But that's besides the point. That's um, a you bring though. up such a good yeah. point that um, some people and some families are just more interested in food. And it, it's just a fact. 
like for instance, my partner, his daughter is, is 19 and her boyfriend eats pizza. And so mm. when he's coming and it's like, you know, I'm a big like, oh, family dinner, big roast. Mm-hmm. Or yeah. let's like put something on the spit in the backyard. Yeah. And I have to sort of be like, just put it in your mouth and eat it. You'll like it. Right. And I'm right. like, wow, what's that like to grow up in a family where you only eat pizza or you only eat pre-made frozen stuff or your mom wasn't into cooking or you didn't have a grandmother who was like, oh, let's go to this restaurant. I can't. Yeah. I feel bad for those people. Like I didn't have a Nona, but I feel like I had a Nona because yeah. New York City was sort of my Nona. That's a really beautiful way of putting it. And I think, though, that also sometimes it's interesting, like, you know, my best friend, Nicole, was a guest with us, like, on an early episode, Nicole Bailey, and she came on to discuss her mom, and that was a very interesting episode, but... Um, she talked about how food wasn't a part of her family at all. And they didn't, her mom wasn't a good cook and she didn't have memories growing up, but her mom made like one thing that she loved so much was, which was like tuna puffs that was made with dehydrated potatoes and a can of tuna fish and like an egg. But it was still like this, like, like super prolific thing for her of just having like this, you know, sometimes you just find these like little things you attach to, but I also came from a food family and not. Not that I, I yeah, you're like I was the like ultimate mix. You're Jewish and Italian. We're like <laughs> the know. same people that never really like mixed. <laughs> I know it's true. It's very true. It's funny. I was just I'm listening to uh, um, Lenny Bruce's autobiography, oh. and he said that you're either Jewish or you're Catholic, and so he's like Ita- he's like Italians are Jew are, are Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. in New York City, like. Anyway, it was very interesting. But, I had an Italian so, boss after college in photography. He was a photographer and I was his studio manager because, you know, after college, you're just like, anybody want to hire me? Yeah. And um, <laughs> he is, the, when my father was dying, he's the other Italian who brought over lasagna. It wasn't as good oh. as yours, obviously. But oh. like that <laughs> is the part like, oh, you're hurting? Here's food. Yeah. yeah. That will make yeah, you feel better. It's the thing. it's the thing that I think, we all have our like toolbox of things, you know, and some of us have our toolbox better equipped with thing- with being able to deal in a crisis. So I mean, you have all your tools and some people just have one thing, which is a lasagna. Some people are great at writing cards. Some people are very scared to even open the box because they're like, I don't know which fucking tool to use. What if I use the wrong one and I break this person? But like, yeah, for me, definitely like what's in my toolbox is like cooking. And I think you know, for a lot of people who, like you're saying, are inclined earlier in life to like food, I think that goes, it surpasses just enjoying the eating of it and the preparing of it, but it goes, it then moves forward to the giving of it and the healing with it, you know? Yeah. And it's fun. Like for me, food has always been fun. Um, you know, Jewish, um, we're half Jewish, half Christian, but Mm -hmm. my mom sort of like moved away from when she moved, when she left Boston, she sort of left that part of her family behind, not because she didn't like them, but she was like, I'm going to New York, peace out. And um, we never really spent so much time with them. And I don't really know that part of the food culture of their side, but it probably wasn't as extensive as my family, my New York family. And my grandmother wasn't the best cook in the world, but she was really good at going out to eat or organizing a very good um, Passover at my aunt's house or something like that. And Mm. so we have had, we've always been 
gathering for food. And it, I didn't actually start cooking until I was 28 or 27. Yeah. So I was, after college, I became um, a studio manager and then I worked at like, um, a nightclub in the city at Mercury Lounge and Bowery Ballroom. And then I worked and like all of this was sort of overlapping as you know, rent is difficult to always come up with. So I was always like kind of peddling a few different jobs. I worked at um, Church Street Surplus, which is a vintage store for a little bit. Um, And then I went backpacking for a year, which is something I had wanted to do, but I didn't have any money to do it. And then I came back and I was like sort of meandering and bartending. And then I was like, all right, I'm going to start working at this little cafe in um, Prospect Heights called Cafe Orteen that's not there anymore. It was out of Washington. And then I was like, okay, I want to do this. I'm going to culinary school. And then I started working at El Buco full-time while going to culinary school. Um, Also at the time when my brother passed away and was sick in the hospital. So it was like full-on, like crunch time. Yeah, everything kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So what year is this? So your brother became... He became ill and then um, he... Yeah, so my brother had like a cold. He had had like a long history of alcoholism and mm. he was like struggling with it. He was 38 when he passed away and he had a cold. And I don't know how much you know about like alcoholics, but when they don't drink, they can go into seizures. And I've seen this yeah. like in person. It's not pretty... And he had a seizure and he stopped breathing. And this was in Massachusetts and they rushed him to the hospital. They airlifted him to Boston and he lost air for, I don't know, seven minutes or something. And he was basically, he was still like awake, but he wasn't himself. And he was like kind of half brain dead. So they put him in the hospital. They attached 27 tubes in and out of him. Um, I finally got to Boston the next day, like next morning and he didn't wake up for a while. He was in ICU. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. So it was 2010. Um, and I, it's all kind of blurry, but he was in ICU and those people are amazing. ICU is like the most attentive, obviously intensive care, but the best place in the hospital to be. And you like become a community with the other parents, husbands, sisters, brothers that are there visiting their loved ones. There's a 28 year old woman who had a brain aneurysm, ran, had just gotten married like three months before brain aneurysm. Um, she was in New Hampshire. Her husband would drive down every day after work. And I don't, I don't, but my dad up till he died was sending Christmas cards to the ICU um, wow. in Boston because yeah. they were so amazing. It's just so moved. Yeah. yeah. It's incredible. Also, you know, I always think about emergency in terms of, and not to, you know, go veering off into a kind of a political zone, but like we are so enmeshed at this point right now uh, in like a divisiveness against people for ideology. And that's neither right nor wrong. I'm not here to say whether, really say whether it's right or wrong, but we are. And then there's these moments when you're just in the shit and then like everything in your life is falling apart. And so is this other person's and you're just just people. people. You're just people for a minute. And like you're people who are like in the worst, most vulnerable time. And I think it's just like, 
I don't know. It's just this really, it's not as, I want to say it's a special time, but that kind of has like a connotation that it's like happy, but it is a well, very it's poignant. So poignant. It is a poignant time yeah. to be amongst and, other people. Yeah. And it's like all the other shit doesn't matter. Like my brother yeah. was like, um, ugh, my mom was smart enough to get him on uh, mass health like mm. three months before this happened. Mm. And um, she like knew sort of this was a possibility in the future. And, um, and uh, you, all the like car accidents or, or speeding tickets or um, like driver's license confiscation or not showing up for like the job, like all that shit or like the phone calls where you're just like driving my parents crazy. All of those things. My brother was a lovely, caring, um, ignatic, bright, shining star, but he had like a terrible drinking problem and he, he, he had Tourette syndrome growing up mm. and as an adult yeah. and like that, you cannot focus on things. You cannot totally. be an adult in the adult world. And sounds be like, like it was hard to be him. Yeah, it was hard. And I think like every, I can't imagine how stressful it must have been every 30 seconds, like a new synapse going off or like something right. else happening in your brain. And I think, you know, like Tourette syndrome is kind of like, we only see it in movies and people are cursing out loud, but that's like not it. Like there's fixation on certain words and phrases and there's a lot of like passion that you put into things that just you can't necessarily focus on other things. And um, I can't imagine trying to like be a member of a white collar family. My mom was a psychoanalyst and my father was uh, owned a plastics factory. Uh, fabric, um, German word, a uh, company in New Jersey, a family mm -hmm. business. And to try to then like go into th some kind of desk job is just, it's not going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you had mentioned kind of when we were chatting before the show about the, you know, and I can relate to this about working in restaurants, which is such a busy, uh, high pressure. And also, I mean, the stress you feel when you're working in the line, it feels like the biggest deal of the world. And then when something like this happens, it is both irritating, eye-opening, ridiculous about the subject matter of what we're upset about. A customer thought this was too rare. There was a hair on this thing. Like, and it seems like the end of the world and you'll see people melt down. And when you're experiencing a real life trauma and then you're in the face of what seems like so important to other people, I know from personal experience, it can feel absolutely maddening. And then also what you had mentioned is it also kind of being a perfect place to hide. And sometimes when we're going through something that's so deeply painful, the opportunity to kind of hide in plain sight is like very welcome because it's a way of escaping from like the horrible pain we're in. So I'd love it if you could kind of expand on that because I thought it was, you know, just great sure. that you had mentioned that. I think it's worth mentioning that when I started cooking, I was really bad as like most young chefs are. Yeah. I couldn't. So, okay. Um, a nine pan is a industrial term for a container that's about a quart. 
And um, every morning I had like 27 different components on my station and it would take me like 30 minutes to brunoise a nine pan of red onions. And like, that's too long. That is like way too long. And yeah. I couldn't <laughs> chiffonade the parsley the way it had to be done. And I like couldn't finish all of these 27 components so that I could help like my, um, my colleague make family meal every day in restaurants people sit down before the service starts for family meal I don't know if you mm -hmm. or your listeners know that but now they do now and they do. you have to <laughs> like some young line cook has to make that and it's a stressful environment so not only do you suck at your job and you want <laughs> to be so good but you're just not there yet your yeah. boss is coming in and telling you your salad is not like reaching the heights it could be so that the customer yeah. is like illuminated when it gets to them <laughs> and he's like flipping your plates over and tossing things across the room and like yelling you know and like thank god i'm a woman because i was never physically abused but i was like definitely mentally harassed and and i i like i you have to take it because you want to be better and you want to be like your colleague who like floats around like like a stingray in the kitchen and can handle all of this and people are giving him more and more stuff and he's just taking it on and flipping the pans and plating the things and going back to the stove and like picking up the next thing and then like at the same time it's like putting family meal out and you're like I fucking suck why am I so <laughs> yeah. bad it's so, hard. It is emotionally difficult. You have this internal struggle going on, you know, trying. So, and at the same time, outside of yourself, these emergencies were happening. Yeah. So then oh. my brother died. So the, well, my brother went into the hospital and he was in the hospital for three months. And which was like really crazy because my parents like moved to a hotel next to the hospital. My oldest sister took their dog. Who? But, this was Shiloh. But Bobby, I would like to mention that my dad's dog's name is Bo. And Hi, it's a great Jim. name until you try to train them and they're learning. No and Bo at the same time, and they're just like, "Wait, am I supposed to pee well, here? Or am I not supposed to be here?" That's the problem. I didn't know what the problem was. <laughs> that's very funny. Um, so yeah, so like he was in the hospital um, uh, for three months, and I was working five days a week at the restaurant. I was going to school three nights a week during the week, and I was working at a bar one night a week, which is one day off. And I was going up to Boston on the Fung. I wasn't Fungwa, I was Lucky Star mm. because Fungwa was right. going out of Port Authority and Lucky Star was still going out of Chinatown. And oh, yeah. I would take the 6 a.m. bus and I would read a cookbook on the bus, which was great. And I would think about like, am I, can I like squeeze a run in down the Charles when I get to Boston? Because you can't sit in the hospital holding someone's hand who is dying and for like, you know, five hours in a row, yeah. you need a break too. And then yeah. I would sit there as long as I could and I would take the, the train back or bus back. And I would always stop at uh, Greater New York Noodle Town. Do you guys know that mm. place? Oh, and yeah. Just, that's one of my favorite spots. I don't even know if it's open anymore, but it was like it open is. like oh, yeah. 23 hours a day. Mm -hmm. I would get some duck yep. noodles and then I would go back to my um, little apartment that the L would go by my bedroom window like a bad movie. And <laughs> I, I would go to work wow, the next day. The duck noodles was like your fuel. But really hiding in my work and like I like the day my brother died was Thanksgiving. No, the day after Thanksgiving or it was Thanksgiving. 
I don't remember. It was like the 28th of November, 2010. So it was around Thanksgiving. And, um, I think that I had that day off and then, oh, the restaurant was closed. It was Thanksgiving. And the mm. next day, um, I went to work and my boss was like, I heard your brother died. Go home. And he like made me go home. And I was yeah. like, I don't want to be at home in my apartment by myself, like crying. I want to be like the help, like busy. I want to be mentally organizing, like how many trips I'm allowed to make to the walk-in and right. like go there and just do and not think because I didn't know how to process it. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I didn't have the like capacity to really like deal with it. So I wanted to hide and yeah, I hid in my work and I kept going to walk in. And if I like got overwhelmed for a second, I could cry because I don't know if your listeners know this either, but for every nice restaurant in the world, there is somebody crying in the walk-in, whether they are stressed out with work or they broke up with their boyfriend or girlfriend, (laughs) or they um, just lost a loved one. They are definitely using that walk-in to cry. And even if it's small and then somebody else comes in, you're like, oh yeah, onions. You're like, the onions. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Many a time. Bobby, what do you, from like a kind of your perspective, what, are some, you know, do you see this a lot in other ways of like people kind of hiding in their work or throwing themselves into work? And, you know, what, what would you kind of say to someone in that situation? I mean, what's your kind of analysis? Well, I'm hearing a couple of things. One is that I'm hearing that you were burning the candle at both ends and that you were in a mode, an emergency mode that was hard to stop. You know, it's, it means actually the emergency mode stopping if you were to go to your apartment and be by yourself and actually just being with what was. So it's understandable that you just wanted to, like you said, you didn't have, you didn't feel like you had the resources either inner or outer at that time to process, to use that wonderful word process to process what was going on. And it was true emergency mode. Yeah. I couldn't even talk about it. And it's not because nobody wanted to listen. It was just because I couldn't start talking. I didn't know how to, or I didn't want to. And I didn't, I just the like the worst thing in the world that could possibly happen actually just happened. And I was trying to survive. Yeah. I call it the turtle mode. It's like the turtle shell goes up and thank goodness with turtles, they also then eventually can stick their neck out. So what happened with you? How did you, what did you notice about coming to terms and eventually starting to process this loss? You know, I, didn't really process it. I, I created a couple techniques that sort of got me through the day that worked really well in the kitchen. Um, mm. I don't remember if you, I don't know if you guys remember the show Alec McBeal. There was like a oh, whole smile therapy phenomenon yes. that started off of that. I started yeah. using that. I started saying huh. to myself, everything is great. Everything is going to be okay. Everything is fine. It, it's totally great. Um, and for the kitchen, that is a tremendous tool to use because like, yeah, you're in the shit and your proteins haven't arrived and service is about to start and you only have two portions of fish. And at some point, a whole fish is going to walk through the door, but you're still working your station. You're going to have to run downstairs and play this thing and portion it out while still working your spot because the kitchen's really small and we don't have the extra hands to like somebody just, Oh, don't worry. I'll take over your station. And you know what the truth is that when you feel, um, like when you feel the smile, it changes your chemistry. 
If you feel, if you're in the fear, it also affects your chemistry. So there's a theory that when we can act as if, that it actually helps us better be able to handle things. So the smile theory works. That works. Uh, I ran a lot. I've always like been mm. a runner, but I definitely took a hiatus. I didn't really have time at this time to run. I was like yeah. really busy. And sure. you don't get out of the kitchen until like one or two o'clock. And then you have to like yeah. go home or you go get a drink. And then you're like, just, you have to be there the next day. Yeah. And it's a really so intense You made the time to release yeah. the energy Yeah, and run. And um, the other thing was I ran. I left. Yeah. Uh, I went to California. Yeah, I took uh, a stage at Chez Panisse and Camino, which was a great experience. California is like gold in the soil. They have yeah, asparagus yeah. in February. They have like amazing. $5 a pound of most beautiful arugula I've ever seen. Like everything tastes better. I remember taking, I was like prepping something and I took a bite of celery. I'm like, is this what celery tastes like? I didn't know that. I thought celery tasted like water. Like I wasn't even sure why we were using it. People are showing up at the back door with like, like back alley chanterelles. Like I just found this. Can you find somebody who wants to buy them? And I was like, those are the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And I was like, where are we? And cooks only work 40 hours a week. So California sort of has that like pay scale down that we're like, this is how much people need to make. But then you find these cooks, they have to work their 40 hours in four days because restaurant chefs are 10 to 12 hours. And then they had three days off and they were taking other jobs. So, um, but whereas in New York, you're working like 50 to 70 hours a week and you're not even the boss, you're like just a line cook and you're still struggling to pay rent, but you know, you make it work and it kept me busy and it got me out of New York and I didn't have to see my parents crying every day, which was like a good thing. Exactly. And you change your perspective. You got a wider view. You know, yeah. I think that really helps in the middle of tragedy to just put yourself in a bigger situation to get another perspective. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the different, I mean, there is, you know, look, there we try things on, right? And so there is a difference between running away and just going away. Going away. Yeah. And like we all have to kind of I think it's something that we don't talk about enough in the grieving process is the reasonable reasonableness and uh kind of inevitability of making wrong decisions sometimes that aren't always healthy for us like maybe thinking something like hey I should just smile through this and then maybe like oh when I did it like that it didn't feel good but when I did it like this it worked or you know I ran away at first to get away from my problems but then I ended up it being valuable you know what I mean and sometimes you try something on and it actually wasn't the right thing and that's okay like I think that there's like some idea and why people have all of this avoidance around speaking about grief and, and dealing with it and processing it, that it's like, if I, well, what if I fuck something up? What if I do it the wrong way? I might as well just like, you know what I mean? And, well, the, and the other aspect is you're reactive in grief. You feel emotional. So you're going to react sometimes and not think about what you're doing. And right. you're saying sometimes that can work out and parts of it can work out and parts of it don't. Right. And you're just experimenting, you know? Right. Sure. you've never and, been through this before. You know? And I think it's uncharted territory. you don't want to burden people with your problems, but also you right don't want to think about them. I don't want yeah. to feel this like weight on my shoulders. I don't want to be this angry. I was very angry. 
I think right. the running helped that. with that a lot. And yes, totally. I like hated other people. I had this like major disdain for common problems, like people complaining that their brunch sucked and not customers, but like friends of mine who I would normally yeah. listen to them about their breakup yeah. and be like supportive of them. But I was like, get the fuck away from me. I like, like my world has ended and you yes. have like no actual problems and I have real problems and I right, couldn't yeah. really socialize. I pushed my boyfriend away at the time, which was like actually not a bad thing. And I, <laughs> and <laughs> I, um, just buried myself in work and I didn't, I didn't really, I mean, you're a line cook. You can't see your regular friends anyway, because you don't have yeah. time and you right. don't like exist in the real world. You can't go to weddings. You can't go to like friends barbecues on the weekends. You're like yeah. working. It's a really tough spot. You know, I was watching, rewatching for like the millionth time Groundhog Day the other day. And, you know, even though we were like, we know the five stages of grief aren't necessarily exactly what it's all about. There are still these distinct kind of different feelings we move through when we're in the grieving process. And that movie is really so deeply about really the five stages or whatever different stages of grief that there are in order to kind of truly be able to move through the other side. So while like sometimes you can be in like the anger phase and it feels like, oh God, I was so angry then. And not that you would ever want to feel that anger again or whatever, but it's like, it is a part of this thing. And until you like truly move through that part, the day actually doesn't really change, you know? And it's right. an important right. part. My of, theory like, on, on that is, is really that there's a, a great, anger and grief because there's this giant no it's this mm. no i don't want this to be true it's the powerlessness it's the lack of the helplessness of and i hear no, a lot of your no. guests speaking about helplessness yeah. and like the anger yes. coming from that and not being able to make it i'm looking at my notes that's why i'm looking to this <laughs> <laughs> and like there's nothing that you could do and you're just yeah, like, shit, exactly. you're, this person's actually gone. I like cannot yeah. go see my brother anymore. I can't yeah. call him on the phone. I can't talk to him. And I remember um, my, my grandmother had passed away and my oldest sister had had her third baby. And my dad and I were like in the car rushing out to New Jersey to go see him. And my dad picked up his like super giant cell phone from the car or like car phone <laughs> and was like, I just went to call your, your grandmother, but she's not there. And I was like, yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. Really well, grief is about accepting the reality of the loss over mm -hmm. and over. But you know, an interesting thing I was thinking as you were talking is that grief also is about dealing with the loss and moving ahead at the same time. Right. So what you're describing is that you were conscious of the moving ahead and that your grieving felt very underground. It was just under, it was happening, but you, you didn't want to bring it up. It was too frightening really to bring it up, but you felt it, it affected your body, it affected every part of you. Yeah. But, you know, we do both at the same time. You know, we move ahead in life and we grieve at the same time. I hear a lot of the advice from some of your other guests being that feel the feelings, I didn't yeah. feel the feelings. Yeah. I ran away from the feelings and I kept myself so busy that I didn't have to think about the feelings. And I, it wasn't really until my next two grieving experiences that I really felt the, the pressure from them. The, the first one from losing Gabe and like losing my brother and well, Gabe is my brother, um, but the loss and I didn't. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, like, well, in my last grieving experience, I felt this, this, and this, and this grieving experience is different because, but, um, 
I'll, I'll just segue, uh, that my, my, so this was in 2010 that my brother passed away. And then in 2020, during the sort of May, 2020, the start of the pandemic, if it started in March, this is like, people are really starting to die in New York. Yeah. And my parents are in New York city and my mother dies, but not of COVID. She had had dementia and she Mm. just didn't wake up one day and which was like a crazy time because, you know, mm-hmm. there's so many bodies in New York of COVID mm-hmm. that there's no room in the morgues, that they have these oh, giant God. refrigerators to put people in. And my <sighs> oldest sister, or sorry, my middle sister, or I'm the youngest, my sister, mm-hmm. one notch older than me, is living at my parents' house at this time. And she's like telling me, she's like, okay, so a detective came in in sweatpants and like a Spider-Man mask. Um, a doctor came in or like the EMT came in and with a smiley face mask, she's just like, it's so fucking surreal. She's like, I just like, like, I I don't know what to do. And I'm like, I don't, I don't, you don't also don't want all these like masked invaders in your house, but I mean, it's good that they're masked because of like what's going on. But like, it's also so freaking scary because this was the beginning. We weren't used to seeing everyone in masks, like all the time walking around and it's like New York city, like you go to touch the, the door of your building and 75 people by 8 a.m. has already touched that door. It's scary. Yeah. And yeah, you're walking around the street and you're time. like, everyone's going to kill me. Like, I, you know, like Mr. Bodega Man is going to give me something that I'm going to take home. My whole family is going to die. Like rat poison right. to your rat clan. So in like, the middle yeah. of the worst, uh, you know, emergency in the city. Yeah. Well, one of the worst emergencies in the city here so was this many. personal crisis that was happening in your life. And, right. And, and you, there's, I mean, I wasn't in the city. I was like very safe where I live. I don't have to talk to touch or like interact with people really, because we're kind of in the country. Um, you know, you see your neighbors, but you're not hugging them every day. And so you were in Germany when your parent, when your mom passed. Yeah, I was in Germany and, um, my son was only, um, six months old. No, five, five plus three, eight months old. And, uh, I had brought him home once during December. So when he was three months to meet my mom, so she did get a chance to hold him, but she had dementia and it went really fast. Um, just Mm. so, you know, if, if a pregnancy is nine months, when I was first pregnant, I brought, I came home with my boyfriend or my life partner, whatever you want to call him. Um, and was like, Hey, this is my boyfriend. We're pregnant. I'm staying in Germany. Like I'm going to have a baby. And my mom was pissed. She was really mad. She's like, you're staying in Germany and you're not married and you're having a baby and I'm not going to get to see this baby. So that was so many different things. Yeah. Yeah. Six months later, or wait a second. Oh, sorry. That's not correct. That was like a year before she died. Okay. Then, so that was like January 2019. It's still so fast moving. Yeah. Right? June 2019, I came home for a visit. She doesn't know my name. Right. That's no. six months later. And then like, then Gabe was born. So my brother, uh, my son is also named Gabe, but we could call him Gabriel because that's going to mm. get confusing. Gabriel was yeah. born. I bring him home to meet my mom. And she's like, what a cute baby. Whose baby is this? And oh, I'm like, oh, oh, this is like really fucked up. So all yeah. of, and like my mom and I had a very complicated relationship. She was like, not the best, like hands-on, here's an ice cream kind of mom. I don't, I don't really, I'm like amazed and fascinated by you guys' relationship. <laughs> um, and uh, I, 
um, I had like a lot of anger towards her. And at the end, she sort of didn't get any comeuppance or like she didn't, I couldn't mm. be angry at her anymore because she doesn't like know who I am or what's happening. And she's talking to people like that aren't there and you have to just let go and you have to forgive. Well, that's a very interesting point, right? I mean, that's a very interesting point. And many people like, I mean, it is more often than not that your parents don't get their comeuppance at the end of their life because mm-hmm. there usually is sickness or a sudden death, right? So it's, but that feeling of like when a, when your parent who you do have a difficult relationship with, I really dealt with this with my dad. I mean, my dad and I were quite close, but he was also a real motherfucker in a lot of ways. And uh, I great deeply wanted to tell him like, how I felt. I've even written a short film about it, about like getting that time to really tell somebody about how much they hurt you, but you can't when they're so feeble and you're like, it's this very What's weird feeling you to make it, yourself right, feel the, better. Right. Like, and to, is and that really going to give you closure to hurt yeah, someone? Where does, where does that go, man? Yeah, like, where, where does, does it go? That, like, cause it's intense. No, it's the internal, cause we heal internally. We don't need the other person to heal. It's the letting yeah. go. It's the, it's the understanding how it affected us yeah. and the forgiveness yeah. of them. Yes. Well, remember, remember that shooting in 2015 in South Carolina at the Emanuel um, Methodist church yes. mm-hmm. and yeah. um, that was brutal. And the yeah. congregation forgave the shooter. And right. I, I happened to be in South Carolina on a food trip like the next wow. week. And I went on a Sunday, not to gawk, but like I was like, I don't understand forgiveness. Like, I don't know how to yeah. forgive my mom. And my boyfriend at the time was like, you should forgive your mom. You would feel so much better. It would be like a weight yeah. lifted off your shoulder. It is like, it just just let it go. Let go of the things you that enslave you. And you can then like move forward in life. And I couldn't do it. And I'm sitting there and like, here's this congregation. They, by the way, Joe Biden was there because Joe Biden's the bomb. And he um, was also talking about forgiveness and, and grief. That guy knows grief. He's lost like almost everybody. He's like cursed. And unfortunately, yeah, Yeah. but he's overcome. And he, I I was like I wish I could be that kind of person who could just but you like were learning forward. how right in that moment you that's where it began you know yeah. it's not as if forgiveness is just a moment it can't you know but it's a process and so I feel that was the beginning of your process yeah. right there it was so powerful I, I yeah. said the kind of a similar thing Tova to you the other day to somebody and I've said it many times before actually about harboring resentment and anger towards people while it's so natural it really is like carrying a bunch of heavy suitcases around Mm -hmm. like where you could just drop them off at a place and walk around the city and get to see the sights and it would be so much more pleasant but instead you're like no I'll just carry all my suitcases in my hands for eight hours while I walk through this beautiful garden that I've never been in before and it's like making that choice and it doesn't always feel like a choice but like it is. And yes, sometimes you will pick them up again, but you truly don't have to carry all this heavy yeah, shit around. Erica Badu, bag lady. You can't catch yep. a bus. You got too much stuff. Like totally. <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. great. Well, I always like to quote Victor Frankl and it's a perfect time for that. You know who he is, Tova? No, I don't. He wrote, but I'm he wrote a book called <laughs> yeah. He wrote a book called The Man's Search for Meaning, and he was a Holocaust survivor. He was a psychiatrist, and he in during the Holocaust he lost his entire family. And in his head, he wrote this treatise this book about 
what resilience was about and what, what, how we survived the worst of things that happened. So one of the most powerful things he said is that the last of our human freedoms is the choice of how we view things. And I think that's what we're saying. We're cho you're choosing to view your parents, view your childhood, view your experiences. It's a choice that we make and we have that choice. It doesn't yeah. always feel that way, but we do have that choice. And I mean, I had a baby at home when this was all, when my mom passed away and I couldn't be sad and crying all the time. Like mm. I had to, babies are like sponges, like not just with words, they don't mm. speak until later, mm. but like you have like anxious vibes. They're going to be anxious yeah. vibey. And like, like I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a New Yorker, of course, like I'm jittery, like naturally, <laughs> but like, if you are sad all the time, they're going to, like, vibe on that. Like, I see that. Like, yeah. I smile at Gabe, uh, Gabriel, and he smiles back. And I'm, like, you know, mm -hmm. like, joking around with him when I tell him, like, you know, no, you can't bike into the street. He can use his little bike, which is pretty amazing for yeah. him not to. That's cute. And um, <laughs> he doesn't take me seriously, and he gets mad, and he starts crying, but then I smile, and he'll smile. And I'm like, okay, okay. So, like, you cannot be, like, depressed Sally at home all the time when this is going on. And it, it was okay also because I, I was there then to – like give it back to my dad who just lost his wife of 55 years who like is dying mm. of cancer so the other <laughs> segue right, to the next grief yeah um, you've had a lot of a lot of grief Tova, and, and i just and wanted like to take a recently yeah, <laughs> yeah a lot and just to take intense. a quick beat to like acknowledge that and you know truly like sometimes we're in something so hard, it just becomes our story and we don't even realize like the kind of intensity of it, but just really like you've had so much loss and so much grief and so much, especially in this past couple of years. And I just wanted to take a quick like break to just say thank you so much for ha having the, you know, um, ability to come on and share this with us despite all of that and share well, so candidly. you're welcome but I'm actually using you guys for the free therapy I, I thought that <laughs> <laughs> this would be a good way to like maybe get I mean I did yeah. therapy once and I hated it I was like trying yeah. to like think of topics to talk about and now I actually have like the talk. <laughs> but I often meet a lot of new people here and you know like small chalk in a, a German in a foreign language often goes yeah. into the family and they're like oh your parents must be so sad that you're not there and I'm like well they're dead and yeah. you know my German is not so good that I can be like <laughs> but don't feel bad about asking me that question yeah. because right, right. it just happened and there's a lot of shit going on in the world right now yeah so <laughs> um, I and I derail you but yeah. oh sorry so yeah so um my dad was diagnosed with prostate cancer like kind of around the time that my brother died I, I'm a little confused on my own timeline. I was trying to look back like at the calendar to try to figure out what, but it was like sometime between 2009, 2011, like he sat us down. He's like, I have prostate cancer. Don't you worry. Everyone says the same thing. If you're going to get prostate, if you're going to get cancer, prostate's the one to get. That was yeah. not true at all for him. Mm. Although it's mm. very true for a lot of people. So don't you fret yeah. if somebody in your life has prostate cancer. Um, he had radiation therapy, chemotherapy, and it metastasized into bone cancer. And that's like not a good cancer at all. And it just spreads and it lives in your bone marrow. And mm. you go, you, you, like they give you this, you can go for a skeletal scan. 
And it's not as fun as it sounds like you like drink this radioactive material and then they do an x-ray of your body and they're like, here, the cancer spots. And the last one he did Mm. that I saw was in November or October of 2020. And it was like all black. And I'm like, oh, so where is it? And they're like everything that's black. And I'm like, it's all horrible image. And like he, so, but like he wanted to live. Like he, this here's a dying man. His wife just died uh, randomly. The whole New York City is like under duress. And he's like, so when can I get a vaccine? And I'm like, mm-hmm. that is, uh, we don't know how long you're going to live. Like six months, yeah. a year. And no doctor wants to be like, hey, it's hospice time. But like yeah, at the hard. end, we had to be like to the doctor, he we're like, what, how long is he going to live? And he's like, not really long, like maybe a month, six weeks. And I was like, why couldn't you have told us that before? And he's like, yes. you, you guys wouldn't have listened to me, really. And mm. he he was trying experimental treatments. A lot of his doctors dropped him because they're like, there's really nothing we can do for you more. And he like so he came to Germany. Not necessarily to visit, but for an experimental radiation treatment called lutidium. And um, they do it in Munich and Berlin. And it's had a lot of success Mm. with uh, utero cancer, but not really that much with metastasized cancer. But he was willing to do it. And it was intense. He had to be in a room by himself. Like, this man is dying. He gets on a Mm. plane during a pandemic. He didn't know if they were going to let him in the country he didn't know if he was going to make it. And he like oh then gosh. had to be secluded in a room in a hospital for four days. The radiation is so intense. The nurses can't even go in. And oh he came gosh. out and he was like, the TV was really bad and it was kind of cold in I, there. And sex was determination. Like, Dad. <laughs> and he's like, I'm hungry. <laughs> Let's go. Oh. What was he hungry? And, what was he hungry for? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm like a, like always have snacks kind of prep cook. So, um, I had like a a couple like salami sandwiches in the car with some goat cheese and like some cucumber slices. Um, you know, like Germans are really into snacky sandwiches, which is really nice. You can get a schnitzel sandwich any time of the day, like anywhere, Ah. except for Sundays where nothing's open, but, but yeah, Mm, I love a schnitz. Um, and we, then we took him to Majorca because we were going to go during a pandemic. No one's on the plane. They're like a mask mandate. And my dad's like, my dad's so over this. Like he, every time you go into the hospital to get your blood transfusion or what, you first go get your COVID test, then you go upstairs and get your blood work done. Then you go, like, they tell you whether or not you need an infusion or can you have your chemo today because your numbers are right. And and then you, like, go home and you feel like shit for a day and then you're, like, back at it. And he yeah. was doing this, like, every week, every other week. And I, I must say, if, if you can give blood, give blood. Because in the end, it was those transfusions that kept wow. him alive. Mm-hmm. So we get him on a plane. We get him to Mallorca. He's, like, dying, really. He does not feel well. He doesn't really want to eat. But he's, like, sucking down some langoustines. And we went to a <laughs> lamb farm and got some, like, really beautiful, like, legs of lamb. And and he tried to drink a little wine, but he really, he couldn't. It was making him too sick. And we went to the oh, fish market. The you? Oh, Who so it was else? me and my partner and our son and his son from his first marriage. 
and um, um, my partner's best friend. So it was like a bunch of dudes. And we had this, the whole family, actually, the, the, um, my partner's extended family, his parents and his sister and their family were supposed to come. But at that time, Mallorca was like a red zone and there was no vaccines Mm. optional at this time. And his parents were like, we're not going to die just to go to Mallorca. And his sister was like, it's a red zone. I can't bring the kids back and have them quarantined for two weeks to take them out of school. Like it's not a lot in Germany. You cannot take your kids out of school to go on vacation early or to go oh, to a wow. wedding. It is not allowed. Ah. You can get fined up to $2,500, which is like, I'm like, oh, in America, you can do whatever you want. We're cowboys. Like you yeah. can, you're like, <laughs> oh, it's cheaper to leave one day earlier. Like get the notes sure, from your sure. friend. Yeah. That doesn't oh fly God. here. But, you know, Gabe's baby and my um, my partner is his own business. He's an architecture architect. So and when there's a, a, a school holiday, everything's closed, like everyone's on vacation. Okay. So okay. it's not functional to try to, like, stay somewhere. So we get him to Mallorca. He spends a lot of time sleeping. He eats breakfast every morning and, like, gives my son breakfast, which was, like, the cutest thing in the world. But also, oh. my dad was, like, the cutest man in the world. He was so <laughs> giving. He would, like, oh. uh, it, I remember one birthday, I was working, I had to work the line, and, or maybe it was Father's Day, I can't really remember, and um, he wanted to see me. And so he came into work, and he sharpened all our knives. He had just gotten a new oh. stone. And That's he wanted so to use it, and he was like, I'll just stand here. And he's like, this is great. You guys keep giving me snacks. And he was, like, sharpening oh. away, sharpening away. And then he was, like, critiquing, like, this new cook. He's like, see this edge you have here? It's because you're holding it. And I was like, don't get kicked out of the kitchen. So he was cute until the end. He was cute until the end. He saved parking spots for people in the neighborhood. He knew every dog's name from 14th Street to 34th Street. He he was, like, adorable. And I can't tell you how many people, especially having a dog in New York City, you know, people see somebody else walking the dog, and they're like, how's your father doing? And you're just like, don't ask me that. And, like, start crying in front of a stranger. And you're just like, we hope he's going to pull through. And he's just... He, I mean, they die and you sit there and I took my son back. To, I was in New York for January because my sister's like, okay, dad's like really, really going downhill quick. And I'm like, all right, we're coming. Everything's closed here. The schools are closed. Daycare's closed. Like I can't, you know, it's just me and Gabe sitting at home all day. So we came back to New York. Um, we sat with my dad and then I had to take Gabe back to Germany because it was a little too long for him to be there, not visa wise, but he missed his daddy. And so Mm -hmm. I came back on my own and my dad was in hospice at home, which is amazing because if you're in hospice in a hospital right now, your family members have to be tested or have to be vaccinated. And at this point it was only old people getting vaccined or, or like sick people or, or teachers or police officers. And um, we wouldn't have been able to spend all day with him, which would would have probably been nice, but it was excruciating to see someone die and to like wish them to go to the next realm and push them to let go. And like he kept trying to get up out of bed, but he can't walk. He hasn't eaten in, in a week, only ice chips. And you're just like, let go, let go. And they're like, no, I got to get up. But they're trying to separate their spirit from their body. I don't know. This is like a total assumption. 
And I looked up a lot of this stuff on the internet about how to encourage someone mm-hmm. to like go to the next realm, which is like kind of fucked up. But like, I wanted yeah. him to have peace. It's and not fucked up. It's so normal. It's I feel like so many so people, cool. including myself, who have like been in that position where someone's really hanging on. You want them to go for themselves, for you. It's hard to just sit in that purgatory between but life and death. But you also realize you have no control over it. You literally, mm-hmm. I think that's the thing I learned both in watching my parents die, is that as much as I wanted them to let go and I didn't want them to let go, I had no control. It was a process that they were going on. You're right. There's something happening where they're going over a threshold. They're going into a different yeah. dimension and it's hard work. It, it takes yeah, time. It is. And I felt like really unsupported by the doctors who like don't talk to you about transitioning and I was like a word mm. I really hated I'm like he's not becoming a woman mm. like he's dying right. like use the word right, dying right. His, right. his organs are shutting down like tell me more what's going to happen I'm like do you have an idea yes. like hospice lady like about what stage he's at and she's like it's really different for everybody but there are right. some signs and I was like fuck this I'm googling it like yeah. there are signs that you see but nobody yes. tells you these things you don't talk about yeah. it with children death is not part of a growing up process in our culture yeah. that's and what we're it, trying to change here yeah and, and it, that's it, why hospice I think is a good thing because that is their job is to help to educate about dying yeah. and so did you find there was some help around that? that they uh, were- you know, the, I I don't know if it's we had a bad hospice people or I think what mm-hmm. really the case was because we went through um, like I don't want to talk. I don't want to say bad things, um, but they they were really overstretched and they didn't always have a nurse mm-hmm. to send. And I don't think it's because I think it's just because mm-hmm. there's so many people dying right now or were dying then and it really was a really intense time and they just didn't have the help and we were ended up hiring private nurses just so we could like sleep at night or have a break and like we're taking time like back and forth so I could sit with him or my sister could sit with him and if you could think about it this way you, you were sitting with him through his journey you were accompanying him as far as you could and then there was a certain point where he had to go by himself. But you were with him as long as you could on this, you know, journey of, of life and dying. Yeah. Very powerful thing. I, I think also, just Tova, to your point that you were just making about how nobody tells you what to do or no one sets you up for it. Like, how odd that the one true inevitability in life is death, right? And yet we are so unwilling as a culture to speak about this, that it is the responsibility of a stranger that you meet within the last fucking couple days to a couple hours of someone's life who's supposed to, and, you know, I'm not excusing the, you know, ineptitude or whatever of any of the personal experiences you had with hospice nurses, but I just mean in general, like, that we're expecting this person this is their job to explain what death looks like to us. Like, why can we not live in a country or in a society where we're aware of this before a religion? So, Think about I mean, how yeah. many satyrs you sat through listening about exactly. the 5,000 Jews and then like the 6 million <laughs> Jews, but no one right. ever tells you what death is. Nobody ever tells you how the organs shut down. Nobody ever tells you that the texture of the skin changes, that the the throat will then echo, that um, that there's certain things are happening that they're there. And then no one explains this spiritual letting go. There's there's lots of talk about whether if you're good or not, there's an afterlife or there's purgatory or, um, you know, like we have to remember the death of these people because they struggled for our freedom. But 
no one tells you what it's going to be like to hold your dad's hand while he is disintegrating and like leaving you. Yeah. Amen. Right. Beautiful. Yep. Tova, we could sit and talk to you, obviously, for hours and hours. This is an amazing conversation, and you're such, like, a wonderful human and just, I don't know, just a really special, special person. And I'm so really thrilled that you started listening to the show and by by doing that, like, started to, con- we reconnected and actually, I think, became kind of closer than we ever have been through, like, the past year and just talking online and stuff. Yeah, and you've I, been I, my, I feel really my grateful. Uh, death guru. And I think when you lose someone and then you hear about somebody else losing someone, you sort of step in and be like, I'm here for you. And and because you do know what it's like and you do know that emptiness and you want to be like, no one else is going to understand what it's like to lose a sibling or a father or a mother except for somebody who has. And and I, I thank you for your lasagna and for your friendship and going through this. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it sucks. It really sucks. Yeah, it fucking sucks. It sucks. And because we don't have a religious conversation or community kind of conversation, you know, whatever in school around death, I do think it becomes the community response to like how we show up for each other and being like, yeah, I have been here. And like, and I mean, that is totally our goal with the show too, is just to be like, Hey, like, let's like expand this conversation because, the insult to injury of then losing somebody, being in grief and feeling alienated by it is like, it's too much. That's the unnecessary part, right? There's not much about the pain that we can necessarily change, but we certainly can change how we like deal with it and process it and show up for each other. Um, so I definitely want to ask you, obviously, the question that, you know, we ask everybody on the show, which is that, you know, given what you've been through with all your experiences in grief, and if you can pinpoint what yourself at whatever point in this story you want to, or, or all of them, um, you know, is there advice that you would have given to your younger self about what, you know, given what you know now, what you've been through? Yeah, I, you know, I've thought about this a lot and I, all of the shit that we were really worried about before, about, um, you know, when my, we thought our father was going to die first, like, what are we going to do with mom? Like, where is she Mm going to live? Who's going to take care of her? Are we going to put her in a home? She really doesn't want to go in a home. All of those things, like, how are we going to work as a family? Because we like, don't really like see everything the same way. All of those things are not the things in the end that are the biggest worry. And I think just don't worry so much and just be supportive and be there. And even if you can't be there physically, like call every day and just talk. Um, At the end, my dad had lost his hearing because one of the, the tumors in his brain from his eye, like from the skeleton socket was like pushing on his eardrum and like pushing in his eye. So he lost his vision and in one eye and then he's hearing and I, he couldn't really hear you, but he could like sort of hear you maybe, I don't know. And I think just talking and being there and, and, and you're saying he could feel you. You can yeah. feel each other. So even if you can't be there, you can be there in your emotional experience with somebody else and so going through yeah. this. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So be there. Oh, beautiful. Be there. Yeah. So one good. of the other things we like to do at the end of our show is to imagine you're such an enjoyable human being to spend time with. You're so interesting and you, your tangents, so by much, the way, so. are wonderful. Yes. You go off on every tangent. I, um, well, there's so it's much been to a pleasure. About, especially with I you. Know. <laughs> I know. So we'll have to do it again. We, we'll we have to have you that. back, of course, yeah. 100%. But yeah. we like to think if we could sit down for a meal now, 
what would we all make? Yeah, can, can I, like, course this out? Can I bring a couple yes. things? Like, I'm not, yes, I, of course. I, you of course, know, in my please. life now, I, I have, I don't know, uh, New Yorkers don't know this, but when you leave New York, life gets easier because you get a car to transport things around. Yes, And good. you don't <laughs> have to think, okay, I'm going on my bike, I can only bring one thing, or I'm going on the subway, <laughs> and I can only carry two bags in, like, you know, my hand. So there's, uh, there's a limit of how much I bring. Like, you have a car. You can bring whatever you want. That's um, cool. So I, I've been like always in summertime. I often make gazpachos, especially now that the tomatoes are like really ripening up. And I always like to make it where I take like the pepper and the garlic and the onions, fresh onions, and um, and the tomatoes and like whatever herbs I'm going to use, and macerate that in sugar and salt and white wine mm. vinegar or some kind of acid. And really good olive oil and let that sit in the fridge overnight. And then I blend it and it's like this liquid salad. It is so zingy and refreshing and Mm. I love it. So that would be my first course. I think the second course, because it's also summer, would be, and I haven't made this here because I don't cook with spice anymore or hot Mm. because of my baby. But um, I used to make like grilled chicken thighs that I would marinate in yogurt and harissa and a little honey Mm, to like take down the heat a little and then Mm -hmm. grill it and then like kind of paint that yogurt, yogurt risa, if you will, over (laughs) that and then drizzle it with like a little more honey at the end and like maybe some sea salt, like adjust my seasoning. That, like, I haven't made that in so long, but I, like, used to love that. And I love chicken thighs. They are so juicy. Me too. And chicken chicken is not really popular here. Americans eat a lot of chicken. But beef is really popular here. And more so than beef, more so than, um, and wild pig also, because there's a lot of it. Oh, of course. And then also, I've been, like, foraging all over this neighborhood for blackberries. So definitely a blackberry pie or um, Mm. with blackberry ice cream because I also am moving towards opening my own ice cream shop, hopefully. Like, it was supposed to be this year, but, like, obviously a lot of things that happened in the last year and a half. Um, And so I just – I make a lot of ice cream. My son eats a ton Mm. of ice cream, which is probably not so great (laughs) for him. But we – No, that's amazing. And black, yeah. the blackberries are so plump and juicy right now, and it's, yeah. they're delicious. I've had some good blackberries here, too, actually, which is rare because you don't always get great blackberries in the summer in New York, but I've mm. been finding some of the most fabulous blackberries. And the other day, I just put one in my mouth, and I just, like, held it in my <laughs> mouth for a while, and I'm like, mm, I just want this to last forever. It was just so magical. It was this so was good. Ones. I'm finding that I they're, like, them. starbursts this year. I mean, not yeah. to equate <laughs> fresh fruits or candy, but, like, they right. really, they're so juicy this year. I don't yeah, remember so them being that good. Well, I'm going to bring a beverage, and I think I'm going to make a sangria. Ooh. And I'm going to take a really great rosé. I'm going to make it with rosé. And I think I'm going to put a little bit of... Um, um, herb-infused vodka in it, just a drop. Ooh, okay. And then well, I'm going to yeah, add peaches. Are we going dancing later? <laughs> <laughs> It'll be light, because like, there'll be some juice in it. There'll be citrus, and there'll be peaches. Mm. How good are the peaches this year? Also, delicious. Everything. Good I'm, like, stuff. freaking out over these nectarines. Yeah. Like, my son's, Little like, wind. shoveling them into his mouth, and I'm like, there's a pit. <laughs> Don't eat the whole yeah. thing. <laughs> That sounds so what good, Bobby. Well, I mean, I'm going to bring, to go with our first course, 
I think some fresh baked sourdough focaccia that's just like slathered in olive oil and butter and sage and garlic and sea salt and we can kind of dunk it in our gazpacho Mm. and then I'll bring a second course accompaniment um and I think I'm gonna do to complement your chicken thighs I'm thinking about like a cucumber feta and like kind of like tons of herb salad with lots of raw red onions in it and like yeah. a really bright yeah. zesty lemony vinaigrette crunchy like fresh zingy zest. creamy salty zing yum. zing and then uh, um, I, I want to blend I, that and drink that also <laughs> I know right doesn't that sound delicious and then for dessert you know maybe I'll bring a beverage for dessert so we can kind of bring this party full scale and like I'll just bring some kind of delicious amaro or something that we can put a little lemon twist in and like put it on the rocks and sit and chat and gab all night long that sounds all great all day long we yeah. could sit all day long <laughs> into the night and we, we can, can watch the reality. We'll shower. be back in September for a couple of weeks. Okay, We're going to have cool. a, and and we have a meteor shower. service for my parents. Oh, wow, that's good. It's great. It's the great. other thing Excellent. about the COVID situation is that we weren't able to meet or gather, congregate, or remember, really. And oh, we weren't about to have a Zoom uh, mm. memorial considering how old my parents' friends are. So um, right, right. September 11th. <laughs> Uh, okay. We'll oh never goodness. forget, I know, but there's only so many Saturdays in September That's that I true. could get home for. Uh, so, yeah, I'll be, they met on Martha's Vineyard, so we will oh. be having something then. Um, oh, so nice. They had a plot, and so we'll be putting their remains there. That is really well, thank nice, you for Silva. sharing that with yeah. us. Silva, I really hope to see you in your home in September, yeah. and I hope that you come join us again on the show. And I just really want to reiterate that, you know, I know that you are, have made, you know, your grief is part of your life, but it is really big and it's really like a big, generous uh, gift to come on and share this with everybody. Well, thank uh, everybody. you guys for getting thank the conversation you. started, for for talking about it. Like, it's it's so hard to talk about and it's, it's, um, it's wonderful that you guys have really opened the box on that. And it was so easy to talk about with you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. It, felt so, it felt so easy because you're so generous in what you shared. Thank you. Really, truly. Really, you're a huge part of uh, the food community in New York. Everybody knows who you are, and you're now a huge <laughs> part of the grief community of processing. So thank you so much, Tova, and we really look forward to seeing you again. You too. And if you guys are ever in Germany, come over for some ice cream. Ooh, we'll be there. <laughs> okay, we'll talk to you later. Okay, bye. The Big Food Question is partnering with TD Bank on five special episodes about the resilience of small businesses in the face of a constantly shifting pandemic landscape. We cover avenues for accessing grants, loans, and financial services through federal and local government programs, as well as via nonprofits. We examine the benefits worker cooperatives present to workers, communities, and our food system, and share resources to learn more about operating under this model. We're talking to business owners who started pop-ups and became permanent during the pandemic to see what we can learn. Don't miss these episodes. Subscribe to The Big Food Question wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to TD Bank for supporting this programming. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. 
We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.